0: hi everybody and welcome to our second season of the voices project uh, we're really excited that our topic for today is actually going to kick off on something which has been a extremely important uh, discussion happening on various different multilateral bodies within this region and that is where does medical uh, education and med tech technology all fit in into this next chapter as this region now starts to move in its various different ways to finding solutions that are critical in managing um, health systems and diseases in themselves. Uh, I'm Rohit Sehgal. I'm the Chief Strategist at The Voices Project, a neutral, completely independent, and nonprofit platform. Uh, Our aim and objective is simply to produce deeper insights and knowledge on various public health issues um, that affect us in this uh, region of Asia Pacific. Uh, What we try and do is try and root it in local circumstances, experiences, and, of course, divergences. And if anyone of our listeners uh, remembered our first season, what we tried to really do was to peel that onion in a way of what are some of our key uh, policy gaps uh, facing uh, particular uh, circumstances. And we focused on things like uh, cervical cancer. We focused on the need for behavioral change uh, and segmentation and some really great stuff. Uh, And I think moving into that same stream, this season is really trying to put together a regional understanding and framework for the role of tech in life sciences. How do we mobilize knowledge? How do we get experience from across the region to unify and strengthen research and discourse? And in doing so, uh, let's try and understand, particularly here, the asymmetric distribution, the disparities within uh, Asia Pacific, that really is important, that we can take learnings from one part into another. And let's try and create some consensus, because as we always say, it's about changing lives, but it's all about one step at a time. Right, so let's uh, dive into this. I'm joined today Uh, by two very special people, in fact, two of my probably my favorite people to be talking to today and have been really waiting for uh, this discussion. Um, I have Dr. Karen Priyadarshini, the worldwide lead for health and life sciences, JPAC at Microsoft, and Dr. Hiran Sivaraj, the co-founder and CEO of Oncoshot. And I'll give them a moment to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about what makes them tick. Uh, Karen, would you like to go first?
1: Yeah, Rohit, thank you so much. And uh, hello, Dr. Huron as well. Nice to be speaking with you both. Uh, I think uh, what you mentioned as the goal of this particular discussion we're going to have is just the thing that I do. How do we work with uh, clients in health and life sciences um, to be able to help them digitally transform? Uh, and as, you know, post, almost, almost post-COVID right now, this is the golden period where uh, we did see a lot of acceleration of, you know, use of technology uh, in filling up some of the gaps that we have in the entire care continuum. Uh, and that, I think, is a very exciting period. And I really look forward to sharing a bit more on how technology has enabled uh, health and life sciences.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Karen.
2: Uh, Hiran, yourself? Great. Thanks for the opportunity to you know, participate in this uh, session, and it's a pleasure to be, you know, on the same podium as uh, Karen as well. Um, so, just as a quick background, um, I used to be in the public sector as a practicing oncologist treating breast cancer patients. I still see some patients on a weekly basis. Um, survival for breast cancer has tremendously improved over the last decade, thankfully. Um, however, part, much of my work today is centered around building ecosystems where we are looking at how do we actually connect stakeholders such as hospitals, industry partners such as pharmaceuticals, biotech and CROs for the primary purpose of allowing information to flow. And from that flow of information to actually result in better outcomes for patients with better access to newer therapies um, for cancer. Um, So today's uh, session is really close to my heart. Um, The work that we do today is across obviously developed countries such as in Singapore, but also countries where access to healthcare can be quite disparate, Um, where we work in Australia, as well as in India, for example, where patients still need access to better therapies, but the way we go about doing it can be quite different in those markets as well. And hopefully, um, we can share more um, as we move along.
0: Thanks so much. Right, so listeners, let's get into this because um, I think we're going to learn a lot and hopefully we um, begin to appreciate uh, just exactly what it means to have um, technology and healthcare working hand in hand. Um, So let me give an analogy and an aviation analogy. Um, If healthcare is the aircraft and technology is similar to a runway and the fly-by-wire system, uh, many are saying that we're missing to calculate the length of the runway needed for critical healthcare solutions. And some might be thinking: Are we risking overshooting the runway, or are we flying blind in a somewhat post-pandemic, chronic, uh, preventative care and treatment ecosystem? And so, fundamentally, listeners, the question is: Are we across health services, um, you know, across the region, our patients and policymakers, uh, data technology? How does it play a stronger role? And that often use word multilateral development solutions, right? Um, How do we create sustainable and scalable solutions that can really get us to where we can have better understandings and better solution making? And I think this is where uh, understanding where has the evolution of technology and the outcomes in critical development sector strategies, have they been really delivered? So let's get into this. Um, let me open this up to uh, Hiran and, and, and to Kiran. Um, the it's 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 going to be a slightly difficult question. The role of life sciences and pharma companies, as Hiran you just mentioned, and that intersecting with data and technology uh, and uh, various other mediums uh, has been orbiting around disease prevention, things that matter extremely importantly to uh, many folks here: yeah? the patient pathways, hospital deliveries, efficiencies, long-term care, but. You know, it's been said that there's still some slip between the cup and the lip has the pandemic somewhat created a more conducive synergy for technology and healthcare or is this situation that we see technology on one side and then we see health domain experience on the other the patient the lives the health service providers do we see them coexisting, do we see them coming closer together? I thought that's a good place to maybe get some opinions out there for our listeners who might not be so deeply uh, well-versed in this. Uh, uh, Hirin, why don't we start with you? You've had some, I think, some pretty interesting experiences, uh, I would say, in the last few years. Thanks, Rohit. Um, So that's a a
2: great question to think about. And um, the way I look at it is, if you look at across multiple industry sectors, and the adoption of technology as they've evolved, probably healthcare is one of the last few um, to fully adopt technology in the way that we've seen it being pervasive in other industries. There there are a lot of fundamental reasons behind that. And and that's because healthcare has intrinsically been a very complex multi-stakeholder ecosystem. Um, The role of the care provider can be very different from the role of the payer or the insurer and then you have of course the patient in the center of it all and additional service you know uh, stakeholders such as industry who it typically used to be the the hub of innovation where the new therapies for care for treatment were being developed and you know that interplay was very very complex so naturally the evolution of that evolved in a very siloed perspective where, you know, typically those patients or the healthcare systems where they functioned in, they operated in a silo and everyone else was outside. You do your innovation in your own silo and then you try to make things work between silos. Now that has resulted and that has resulted in a lot of legacy issues. Um, Primarily because, if you think about it, who are the people who are delivering healthcare services? These are individuals, usually at the level of individuals, Your doctors. Um, your doctors are now outside of the role of technology when they are delivering healthcare services. And in their lifetimes, if you are going to implement any kind of technology, you need to suddenly have that shift or that buy-in at every stage of that doctor's career which is much easier said than done, right? Because once things are comfortable, we just tend to continue with how it is. So it requires a major shift, sometimes even more than a 10x kind of a benefit at the level of the doctor, at the level of the patient, at the level of the ecosystem to get buy-in from all stakeholders. And that's where usually the challenge is. So we've seen that it's much easier to say no in healthcare and to say yes. However, what I feel has really changed over the last few years is that while some of us may have seen, look, the evolution of technology and how it has changed other industries could be applicable to healthcare and early adopters, early innovators rather have really tried to push that in the frontier. We are still really at the start of things. And even, um, and importantly, I think one of the key points that you raised was how has COVID really changed the entire picture? I think COVID has done a lot. Um, Now, between the point of, or rather, before COVID and after COVID, that is a really obvious transition point um, that many of us can see. Um, The transition point is not necessarily just in the adoption of the solutions, but most importantly, I think, is in the mental model and readiness, psychologically, that we need to be outward looking as healthcare system and stakeholders. Now that I think is the most exciting part because we are probably just at that inflection point of how technology is going to start getting adopted. Um, When it comes to technology, I think there are two types of technology. Now I'm not a technology person, but um, the way I would think about it simplistically is, one is what you would call the piping of infrastructure that needs to be shaped to connect your various stakeholders. Now, this is difficult work because it usually requires a top-down approach where it's shaped by policy. It is shaped by getting alignment from all stakeholders to say, look, between each of us, we own our own plot of land, but we need common piping to move between us. And this is where you all need to come in, and we need to be on the same page with that. The other role of technology is probably what I would say in my, my own thinking is what I Referred to as last mile kind of technology. What is last mile kind of technology? Last mile kind of technology would be, look, a patient can't come to the hospital because of COVID. How do we deploy telemedicine so that the doctor can remotely provide that service? It is not. I don't look at it as tremendously transformative from the perspective of the ecosystem. But at the point of COVID, we realized that hey, this simple tool allows us to to continue caring for the patient without compromise to their health. And so it becomes transformative in that sense. But at the end of the day, the ability for us to use it was really um, necessitated because of the circumstances, not because of the readiness necessarily of the ecosystem. Now, these two kinds of technologies need to go hand in hand for us to see the true change that we want to see over the next decade or so. Um, it's not one or the other, but it's both, and I, I think COVID has had an important role to play in this in this entire scheme of things.
0: Erin, that's a that's a terrific way to 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 launch this discussion. Um, I, I think uh, the idea of BC and AC before COVID and after COVID, but let me put it this way, and maybe I'll I'll, I'll turn to Karen for her opinion here. Is that at every point in time, you mentioned correctly that. Uh, Healthcare has always been a bit of a laggard when it's come to the adoption or the readiness of accepting the role of technology. Uh, One thought during the financial crisis in 2009, 2008, this is the time, healthcare has to find new efficient ways. Then came the patent cliff 2012, 2013. It has to happen now, we have to find readiness, we have to find places where more efficient usages and health records and so on and so on. And then it took this longer than expected period of time where a blank space happened. And here we are today, where we're coming out of the shadows of this pandemic. Some countries in this region are still struggling within that. Will this be truly that inflection point, Hiran, as you said, and will this possibly be one that we don't try and default back to how it used to be, but really try and find more sustainable ways for technology inclusion? Karen, what would you have to say to that? And I think also picking up on what Hiran said earlier
1: yeah absolutely so um dr Huron, i fully agree with what you said and love the way you mentioned how technology is both on the intra piece as well as on the solution piece and they have to come together but i would err on the side of being a bit more optimistic and saying yes uh, they have come together and this is where rohit your question you're absolutely spot on i think one of the silver linings of COVID has been a unifying factor, right? It has brought the entire world together and the world has realized that, you know, it's not just finance and retail and gaming that need technology, but, you know, life is gonna affect everybody. And that is why you see this big leap uh, in in transformative care during these, I would say two and a half years, that the good news is that it's not going back because people have realized the, the, the ease Uh, the better outcomes that technology can bring and it's like tasting something that is good and now wanting for more so in my opinion i think uh, digital technology has become an integral part of healthcare and i would say i would agree with dr Huron that it is just the beginning Uh, it is all set to revolutionize the practice of medicine in in little ways at the moment but i'm sure it's going to grow Uh, And what one has seen during the whole COVID period is that, and even personally, that technology has actually improved uh, operational efficiency in hospitals. Uh, It has improved standards. You're able to kind of share um, the standards of medical care. uh, And it has also um, enhanced greatly the overall experience of both the patients and the healthcare provider. Uh, Because if you look at it during the whole COVID time, nobody could go in Singapore, for example, people would not go to the hospitals. And so telemedicine became a big, big, big help because you could be in the comfort of your own home. So patient experience has definitely been enhanced, but there are other few areas that I think have really blossomed uh, under this, uh, the technology expansion in healthcare. One, of course, is very basic. You know, access to medical information and data. You have so many all the hospitals coming out with apps that you know helps the patient gather information of the hospital disease areas, for example. So the patient has actually been educated, let's say, in a much better way. Uh, we've also within a hospital, we've been able to use technology for better care coordination. We had this very interesting example, you know, in a big hospital groups where, let's say, I used to go to the hospital near my house Let's say, it's hospital X and it had a subsidiary in, in, let's say, city Y. And now because of COVID, I'm not able to travel, so I have to go to the one that is probably nearer to my house or... Uh, And that hospital does not have the medical records that you know the other subsidiary hospital had. So what happened is the whole care coordination came together within a hospital across different specialties. All the doctors could look at one unified medical record across different physical hospitals as well. They began to kind of coordinate to have a, a single unified medical record. So I would say that care coordination has really improved. That's another area where I personally see a lot of Uh, enhancements. A lot of hospitals who had, you know, paper, the medical record on paper, I don't know about you, um, Rohit, but when I was younger, you know, used to have these files, and the files, even in Singapore, would move, uh, you know, overhead um, to kind of move from one room to the other, gone are those days. Uh, Now you see a lot of consolidation around your medical records, Uh, so that's a big blessing, and in some markets, patients can actually kind of they have access to their own medical data. So you can literally carry it on a phone uh, and travel with you. Let's say somebody has a specific allergy or a specific blood condition. They can actually have all their reports and uh, discharge summaries, everything in the comfort of their uh, phone and they can travel uh, wherever they go. And then of course, Dr. Huron, you mentioned telemedicine. I think that's a big, big boon. Um, You know, now even public hospitals are going into a hybrid mode, you know, stay at home, there's no need for you to come and, you know, congest the AE or the clinics. Uh, if there's something that we can, like a refill of medication, something that can be done very easily through technology, so be it. And, and the other one that I think, um, even now, given this Ukraine war that and Russia war that's going on, we've seen online education really kind of become big um, in the uh, healthcare sector. So it's not just you know education for students, but also in the medical sector. Like you know, Microsoft has come out with uh, HoloLens, which has helped kind of you know remove geographical boundaries, connect people together. And so, and the last one I, that I personally feel uh, has impacted a lot is around what we call it as um, digital front door for the patient. You know, hospitals pre-COVID never engage with the patient. Take your medication, you're done. Come back in three months' time for a regular checkup. But now hospitals are following up you know how are you feeling after five days after an operation when you go home Uh, are there any side effects you know and then using telemedicine to talk to patients So i think that has changed quite a bit where hospitals are very proactively engaging with patients so i would say that i mean i can go on and on but i think these are some of the as what dr Huren you said some of the little little blessings that we see where technology has played a great role in, you know, having a better experience for patients. I think that's very important uh, in being able to also have better patient outcomes. Uh, And of course, to a great extent, lowering costs, because now, you know, the patient can be anywhere and you can talk to that patient. So I would say a big plus uh, when it comes to technology uh, in healthcare post-COVID.
0: So it's interesting, and I and I think for our listeners to sort of hear these points of view. Um, the question is, when you see the readiness that you've got technology and potentially the role and the domain experience that health services need to sort of adopt and adapt, um, it it's, it's possible. Uh, the, as 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 Karen just said, it's true. It's like there's a there are these small blessings that the pandemic has brought that we can actually have. Coexistence. Now, obviously, the big question is, will a uh, healthcare policy be able to adopt towards tech policy? And it shouldn't then just be a conventional approach to how policies are driven, but really understanding the mechanics. Now, let me, uh, Hiran, go back to what you said, which I think is really interesting. And I'll pick up also, Kiran, from what you just said here, that ultimately, health is delivered by individuals. Um, they are not nameless, they're not faceless, they're not monoliths. Uh, we do refer to them as providers of health. We do provide them as these sort of brick and mortar systems, but at the end of the day, you've got someone who is either acutely ill or having to live with a disease for a very long time. And I think one of the biggest areas that we seem to sometimes overlook is that where does technology start and where does health finish? It shouldn't really matter now. It shouldn't be something which people tend to differentiate. So let me ask, I guess, a, I guess, a, a next question, which um, I think is an important one: that describe a world, or describe a situation. And here, let me let me point to you here, because the idea of co-ownership of disease management, medical domain experience, um, this sort of uh, interwoven uh, community of digital nativity, is this that sweet spot? Is this where now is not so much about finding solutions that are uh, complicated and complex, but intuitive and personalized. Um, is this where perhaps cancer care, one of the leading uh, priorities now for SDGs for 2030 are gonna now, it's, it's staring at economies in the face, but potentially is co-ownership possible thanks to this technology, uh, uh, co-ownership. I was gonna say intervention, but maybe that's not the right word. Uh, what, what, what would be your thoughts there here? So Rohit, um...
2: If I could just ask, when when you mean co-ownership, are you talking about the patient being an equal partner as his doctor or maybe the patient, the doctor and even other stakeholders being equal partners in that?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's almost like all of the above. I mean, do we have to even limit the co-ownership of disease? Are there uh, between doctor, patient, administrator, uh, the access of certain medication, the provision and care and such like but absolutely here and and per your well, what would you think would be the best definition would also be interesting to hear. so I, I think the ideal healthcare
2: utopia for me is is one where you recognize and you appreciate the role of each of these stakeholders within its consolidated ecosystem and that ecosystem is also built around the patient right now to take a leaf out of the book of you know, people who are in the tech field, um, who may describe the implementation of technology, um, I like to think about it in three layers. Data, infrastructure, and your network. (laughs) Um, I think this fundamentally is also addressing these three components would be critical to allow for us to have that ideal utopia for healthcare. Why? Because without any of these three in place, you don't have that ideal system. What do I mean by that? So data is absolutely necessary. If you are going to connect the different stakeholders across a patient's entire prevention to treatment journey, there are going to be various doctors who are involved in your care, various pockets of data silos that are being generated. This needs not just only be shared with the patient, but it also needs to be shared with stakeholders. It is not just important for data to be created, it is important for data to flow and to be shared. Now if you don't have that data in place, if you don't have the infrastructure in place to allow for that data to flow, you can't actually build on the CAD quality that you want to actually be able to deliver to that patient. Um, Infrastructure is something that I talked about earlier right? in terms of your technologies that are going to be built, not just for information sharing, for improvement of the services within a particular healthcare institute, but also in terms of last mile, how do you actually improve the care that is delivered to a patient? This could be things like remote monitoring, digital therapeutics, what have you, right? Um, The whole set of product solutions that are catered for that individual patient with a very different Today, it's all about personalised medicine, right? And you would naturally need this plethora of unique products um, that have been, of course, tested, approved, and the outcomes of which are continuously being tracked. But all that forms within the infrastructure layer that needs to come together. And the last is your network. If at the end of the day, you've got all the stakeholders, the enterprise stakeholders, like the hospitals or the industry, and your solution partners, but say you don't have something as basic as how does the information flow back to the patient, You know the last component of that network, then your ecosystem is not ideal as well, right? And, and I think um, this is where as, from the policymakers' perspective, um, I know that they are looking into it at least in the context of Singapore, um, but from the level of each of these stakeholders, we should also be introspecting and looking at how are we addressing the needs of data, infrastructure, and network from our perspective, not just waiting for it to be a top-down push, but what can we, from a bottom-up perspective, do as a patient, as a healthcare system, as a physician, as an industry partner, as a solution provider or a startup. And I think that all those three components need to come into place for us to actually move the needle here. Mm
0: wow uh kiran i'm sure you have something to say to that i think i'd love to hear in that context the last mile from your point of view as well because i think Hirin's brought that up in a very relevant context um, just as we talk about transport policy just as we talk about education policy it's the last mile that matters uh kiran what, what would be your thoughts to what Hirin just said but I would love to hear your thoughts on the last mile there as well.
1: Yeah, so again, Rohit, um, fully agree with uh, what Dr. Huron is saying, but I would like to uh, kind of take a jab in a slightly different way. So the first thing is, yes, in healthcare, you know, policymakers have always done a catch-on game, right? Technology has moved so fast. It always does. So at Microsoft, what we also do is we work very closely with regulators. So, you know, earlier telemedicine was not allowed in Singapore. so um, the government in Singapore was very proactive. They kind of reached out and said, "Tell us how does this whole thing work? Uh, what happens to data? Where does the data sit? You know, uh, are there any? Um, what happens to compliance, privacy?" So this is where I think tech partners like Microsoft play a role, where we help uh, st- relevant stakeholders understand, you know, how. Uh, data flows, as what Dr. Hurin was saying. What is the infra underneath? How is it secure? How compliant it is to help them understand. And and the beautiful part is that once they understand that, they move really fast. And you can see the outcome within two and a half years, we are, we are doing telemed like, you know, as though it has always been there. So that's my first response. The second was in terms of ecosystem, you know, healthcare has been here for so many years. Now, if you think of building that ecosystem, things are going to be really slow. It's like getting a, a dinosaur to dance, for example. But the interesting part is that dinosaur has certain parts which are more flexible. And that's where, you know, we need to take the jab. So like even in Singapore, I've seen uh, payers, for example, retail, banks coming in and playing a big role in healthcare. Because... Whatever you might say, healthcare data is one of the richest form of data, right? You have your medication, you have financial information, the billings that you do, you have your credit card information, um, you have socio-demographic information, you also have you know other data that you collect thanks to your smart wearables so we do see all these players coming in and that's where I find that ecosystem coming into play, but to Dr Huron's point getting everybody to synchronize and play to the beats is going to take some time, but there are portions which have moved forward so one of the areas that I do see the ecosystem play in a big way is around prevention. Um, So even before you, you know, people are aging and even Singapore realizes that the health burden is going to be huge and they are taking steps towards it. But even before that, how do we prevent them people from even becoming sick? And that's where the wellness, the prevention part comes in. Because people are living longer. They don't want to you know, be the quality. They don't want to sacrifice the quality of life. They want to live healthy. I spoke to one of the doctors and they were saying, hey, I at the age of 80, I should be able to jog the same way that I'm jogging now. So that is the expectation that's being built in. And this ecosystem play is very strong and healthcare will be moving into that. But if you look at the wellness piece, uh, if you look at the prevention piece, personalized ecosystem is the name of the game right? And what do you mean by that? It means that as an individual, when you're looking at bringing in health and wellness, you're not just looking at the health per se. So for Karen, you're looking at, hey, what is her leisure activity? What is her work life? What is her family life? What's the social life? What's the community life? And when you bring these data sets together and they're interoperable, they talk to each other. They're not silo systems that, you know, retail doesn't talk to finance. No, no, no. Let As Dr. Huren said, patient is at the center, but all these solutions and errors circle around the patient. So look at it. Let me give you an example. Using all this data and AI for sure, you can draw insights and say, hey, Karen has been spending long hours on the computer, sending out emails, and Microsoft already is starting on that using Viva Insight. And then you find that there is a spike in my online shopping. Now... A simple insight would be, hey, you really need to get up and walk and de-stress yourself because you seem to be, you know, ordering a lot of food and doing a lot of retail, uh, online shopping. That's going to impact you financially and also health-wise. So if you can bring these different uh, disparate systems together, you have an ecosystem. And for me, it might be shopping. For Dr. Hurin, it might be, you know, fitness. He looks very fit, though, so it might be fitness. So it could be like, you know, gym related activities or things like that. So everybody's ecosystem becomes very personalized. And that is a game changer because it's not like one pill fits all. But if Rohit loves doing, let's say, podcasts, uh, probably he gets exposed to all the documentaries and, you know, things like that. Personalized interest based ecosystem is the name of the game.
0: Yeah. And if I would sort of try and summarize what you both just said there, it's almost like looking at the traditional patient continuum of care, but then really looking at it from what that journey is like. So somebody who's suffering from a chronic disease, debilitating, degenerative, anything of that sort, it's not just about their health life but it's also about their life it's about what they've been eating what they were how long have they been sleeping um where have they been walking to or visiting uh, being able to track and manage the complexity of that there was some wonderful work even done in mental health and depression that showed uh, improvements if one could manage not just treatment the physical med- medication but just seeing where the patient was traveling and being so it's almost like looking at the overall ecosystem, and I think picking up on the digital infrastructure and the network angle that Heron brought in, I think that's 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 a really relevant point. I guess, let me sort of switch tracks to one area that I know uh, many uh, policymakers have been asking and thinking, now, when we use the word personalized health, and we talk about it being uh you know uh, the next best thing ever that's going to now really solve things the term financial toxicity always creeps in Uh, while we've been reflecting and looking at the Singapore ecosystem and uh, from a developed sense uh, much of Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands is looking at personalized health and saying ah that looks great but how are we going to afford that we've got patients who are already struggling under uh, long-term care, there's obviously you know uh, issues related to just what is essential, non-essential, and we'll cover that in other episodes. But in that light, um, and maybe here, and I'll, I'll switch back to you for this: is that do you see technologies uh, overcoming some of this financial toxicity? Um, and let me reflect a little bit about the work that you're doing on the clinical trial registry, which I think listeners would really sort of see as a, as a as a real-life example. How is that, in some ways, improving? Um, I guess outcomes, but then also trying to sort of alleviate some of that financial burden. Thanks, Rohit. Um,
2: maybe I'll, I'd like to firstly contextualize um, the concept of personalized medicine or personalized health in this case, just to really shape the discussion. Um, so, in this case, I think what I want to talk about is personalized healthcare delivery. Um, particularly in the context of patients who are ill, say, for example, a cancer patient population. Today, there's a lot of discussion around personalized medicine and oncology is a good field, you know, uh, where there's a lot of focus in terms of the concept of personalized medicine. So what does it actually entail? It entails a few things. Not just looking at a person's, you know, general body status or health or diagnosis, but sometimes even going down to the level of their genomics or omics profiles of the genetics that they were inherited and the genetics of their cancers or their disease. And how does that actually determine the sort of treatments they receive? How does that determine the outcomes of the disease that they have, for example? Now, that is this entire paradigm of personalized medicine. Now, today there was a very interesting article in the Straits Times. I'm not sure if the both of you managed to actually read it. It was centered around a patient who had a rare and aggressive form of cancer, um, where you would typically not be able to pull up a piece of research of published medication and say that look, a particular treatment with this rare cancer has worked, is effective and there is an approved therapy for that, and we see a lot of this in oncology, because what you started to realize is cancer is not just one disease, it is actually many diseases, and as we start understanding the genomics of these cancers, in fact, each patient's cancer can be quite different from the other, right? However, how it has all evolved is from the the perspective of oncology as a treatment where as a um, as a field where initially most of our treatments were really you know getting a real shotgun or a bazooka and just spraying all over the place with whatever therapies that would just work for the majority of patients with a particular cancer diagnosis. And we think that that approach is really what has led us to the point where at least from a policy perspective, we are able to look at studies that have looked at hundreds or thousands of patients and from the perspective of these large pools of patients determine that there is a particular drug that works across these broad patient characteristics and hence we can then approve for this purpose that a funder would pay that for that treatment so here you have today where alluding to Karen's earlier perspective, and sometimes technology advances at such a rapid pace, you know, policy needs to play catch up. And in this case, it's a great example in oncology where we've gone down the road of being able to learn so much more about our cancers that we suddenly cannot pigeonhole that disease into what has been determined in the past from studies. Or if you take that approach, we may be actually not giving that entire landscape of potential options. And a patient who already has limited options can have access to so in this particular article it's quite interesting because a patient was sequenced was found to have some very rare mutations in a rare cancer subtype and when they actually attempted the treatment which did work by the way they could not get the funding to pay for that the insurer said there's no evidence the use of the drug was not approved for that genomic profile or for that cancer and 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 this is something that that is very close to my heart. Um, the work that Oncoshot does is in relation to fundamentally oncology, plus data, plus looking at how all of these insights can be used to solve access to developmental therapies. The goal is that you know by addressing these core fundamental issues, tomorrow we don't just talk about trials or better access to trials, but we can actually talk about even other use cases, for example, how do we know that a different approach for cancer has resulted in better outcomes? How can that data then be used to justify funding for the use of a drug in this case? And how do oncologists be able to access this rapidly aggregating data and to apply it to their patients instead of waiting for someone somewhere to publish something and hoping that they would find that piece of publication like a needle in a haystack. So OncShot's work was fundamentally to build a bridge across healthcare systems and industry partners, where we said, look, if at the end of the day, we wanted to build a bridge where data can flow with the end goal of improving outcomes, can we identify a use case in which let the data flow and solve a small problem for a start? That small problem that we're trying to solve is, For every individual or unique cancer patient with that particular cancer diagnosis and genomic profile, how can we rapidly identify new study treatment options that are happening not just in a hospital, but within the larger ecosystem? And from a larger ecosystem perspective, how can industry partners who are armed with thousands of molecules conducting more than 15,000 clinical trials for cancer alone across the world, say look I just realized that there are a group of unique patient populations in this part of the world existing here and now right not just random estimates but data that supports aggregated data that supports this justification and then to proactively bring this therapies back to our patients and in this case what we are really trying to do is at least use build on a use case that leverages secure aggregated insights to introduce therapies to patients but also address that need to do it in a personalized manner from the unique cancer patients perspective and we think that um, this is not an easy easy job as well because going back to this entire discussion about ecosystem and stakeholders you would imagine that if you want to build a bridge across healthcare systems and industry you don't just go in there with you know your your machinery and say thank you everyone let me build that bridge no um you first need to get buy in for someone to allow you to get onto their property um you know to give you that that permission or that card to say yes you can start doing something you obviously wouldn't start building a bridge and committing all your resources you need to start with some floating wooden planks if you may you know just to get people across to the other side and then eventually work on that infrastructure and as a startup that's that's the approach that we've taken. Um, this has allowed us to learn a lot about personalised medicine, but it also has forced us to take the perspective of really identifying use cases where we can make things work and facilitate collaboration across the ecosystem. So that's that's my take on you know, um, you know, the role of ecosystems um, and why the ecosystem stakeholders require infrastructure and data to eventually get to the point where they can justify and the end goal of personalized healthcare, which I think is an important outcome that we want to be able to achieve over the next decades. Um, But there's a long way that that needs to be done. And while there are already baby
0: steps that are being taken, there's more work that needs to be done in this field. So in a way, rather than that huge bridge right away and scaring the the life out of some people, start to throw across a few planks, <laughs> a few little bits and pieces that people feel that they can at least tread water and start to go over. Now, interesting that you say this because, you know, e- let's face this, economic debt uh, and, you know, debts coming home to roost post-pandemic for Southeast Asia in particular, it's forcing governments to make some really hard decisions. And, and what you're saying there here, and I think is absolutely right, that if there are examples or areas where technologies are alleviating this burden, as you've just outlined in your own way, you're beginning that process. And if more can understand what it takes to get there, um, we're able to sort of find ways that removes just not just angles of financial toxicity, but the entire policy making itself begins to become more hybrid. The right resources at the right time, for the right trial, for the right patient, as personalized as you could get. Uh, You've also touched upon, I think, something which I think is a a critical aspect, and that is this term of absenteeism. I think uh, the shout out to our common friend here, probably Salma Khalik, whose article you referred to, and absolutely, I think, has has really raised an issue uh, that has been very present, and that is the fact that where are payers and insurers in this whole sequence of things? Uh, To use your analogy, when we throw a few planks over that river, uh, how or are we looking at the role of insurers particularly? Because at the end of the day, we can have all the best technology and we can have all the best training, but if we don't have participation from the ones who will help afford it, then we really aren't going to get anywhere. Uh, I don't know if that's a question if anyone wants to sort of give an opinion on, but uh, any thoughts to that, or should we just treat that more as a... Uh,
2: high- I would just like to add to that, and I and I, and I think this might be controversial or a very non-friendly statement. But as a physician who takes care of patients and you know wearing one hat and in the other hat being on the startup side of things where you're engaging multiple stakeholders, I think at the end of the day, from the perspective of payers, it's about dollars and cents. Mm. Yeah. All right. Um, so I asked the question, the question rather, Why can't insurers or payers be the ones who actually drive the need to actually get data exchange platforms to be built in a safe and secure manner? Because fundamentally, it is going to be this data that impacts how you analyze the information and outcomes and determine what you're going to reimburse. Mm. Right. However, the feedback that we tend to get is, well, it is not going to save me money today. Mm. At this point in time, I'm not too sure whether I'm going to invest into that. Today, I work in a landscape where, for many of my cancer patients, when they submit an insurance claim, I get a piece of paper that's five pages long for me to fill up everything, de- all the details about you know, their cancer diagnosis, treatment, and then I'll print out you know, the investigations this is all compiled, we send it over to the insurance company. And then something happens in that black box. Um, and then eventually someone then makes a call, okay, looks like everything's in place. Now is this an approved drug for this indication? Is the hospital doing the right thing for this patient? And then we then pay, right? This is the current framework. And when we suddenly start asking, look, how are we going to get to the end point of personalized healthcare? how do we actually convince the eventual payers that this new model is justifiable, right? No one is going to come on board and just say, look, I'm going to take on the responsibility of building that bridge, Mm -hmm. right? And and I think this is where um, it's an unfortunate situation, but I think the mindsets can be changed. And I think technology um, and its ability to cross that bridge could actually be transformative in that process. But for this group of stakeholders, you probably need some additional effort and buy-in to say that, look, I think that's an important role that you can play in facilitating and improving this entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And where are you going to be on that? Um, If you just look at yourself as a payer, and as a role of a a payer, I just want to make sure I don't pay as much as I can, or rather I don't pay as much that is not needed, then you're never going to make that transformative change. And and I mean that's just my controversial statement for the day, but I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> I, I don't think it's controversial at all. I, I think that's something which many people uh, are are talking very actively, and and I think it's an area that we really need to be focusing on as much as possible. Kieran, would would you have any any add-ons to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let me be the harbinger of good news to uh, you, <laughs> Dr. kiran And the and the the news is that yes, the pairs are in. Um, the public payers are probably a little more slower because the scale is larger, but the private payers and I work with five of them right now as we speak. They are already in. Now, one of and if you wear the if you get into the shoes of the payer, the problem that they also have is when you do not have when you deviate from the standard of care, they have no way to analyze and understand whether that's the right fit. So what the payers have done, and a classic example is COVID. You know, we never had insurance for COVID, but now in Singapore, we also have insurance for the uh, reimbursement for the ART tasks as well. So payers are catching on. It's just that they are a little, probably a step behind, but yes, they are there. So what the payers are doing in your spot on, it's all about dollars and cents. So the payers are saying, hey, you know, this particular pool of patients, I don't have much leeway because the model has already been built but what if i prevent people from being sick and what hospitals have not been able to do what public payers have done in a limited way private payers are stepping in and saying i'm going to reward you for not getting into that bucket so a lot of uh, you know work is being done in preventing so if somebody's pre diabetic preventing them from becoming fully diabetic, right? So that's where the pairs are saying, if I'm able to uh, control the funnel over there, then my ultimate burden, let's say years down the line, is gonna be much lesser. So we see a lot of very interesting work being done in that space. So the answer to this is yes, the pairs are there and we're very happy about that. Um, And Rohit, if I could just step back a little bit to the earlier question you asked around Financial toxicity, and I think that's where uh, I think technology can really play a very good role. Because I was actually when, when you know we were discussing this, uh, we were reading a few articles from some of the key um, uh, you know research companies, and what they have also come out with data is that you know adult patients with cancer uh, obviously they are you know more likely to be bankrupt than people of the same age but who do not have cancer. Uh, And it's seen that patients who are declared as bankrupt, the mortality rate is much higher. Mm. Um, So this is something, and and of course, especially because we're talking about cancer, uh, I'm sure Dr. Huron, you'll agree with me that low income levels have been associated. So if you look at the incidence of cancer, and if you were to split that into different economic strata, you do see that low income levels have been associated with increased cancer death, but not just cancer, for that matter. You know, even cardiovascular risk factors, which is really big in Singapore, and also higher financial burden. So there is a very, I would say, strong link between, um, you know, uh, if you, you you use the word financial toxicity and the incidence uh, of a disease and mortality rate. Now this is where technology really comes in, because you know, technology can't differentiate. You know, are you rich? Are you poor? Like when COVID happened you know, uh, beds were in great shortage in India, right? So, and if you have the ability to pay, you get a bed. If you have a contact, you're able to get a bed. But the thing is that uh, technology really doesn't matter. It does not differentiate. It's just access. And and I actually wrote down as you were talking three very interesting things. You see, when you're looking at a cancer, a rare form of cancer, and now most cancers are becoming rare because it's very specific to that particular individual. uh, And so, uh, one of the things that in Microsoft we kind of um, are working towards is in being able to reduce the cost of drugs because the problem starts from there. Why should the drug be so expensive? And then the answer comes that, hey, you know, we spent dollars, billions of dollars in the R&D. We spent like 12 years, but you know, COVID vaccines have shown us it can be done much faster. And that's where we are looking at Microsoft, working with partners to come up with virtual clinical trials. Um, Is there a hyper compute that we can use to kind of crunch that data? So that the, the 12 years that pharma spends in coming out with the drug, can you kind of make that into six years or three years? That's one the second and therefore your developmental therapy is much cheaper right so that's one thing i wanted to share the second thing is you know even with the most rare form of cancer uh, we do have information the problem is that we're not able to kind of get all this information together and uh, interestingly, Microsoft and and the reason why I keep saying Microsoft is because I love these little tools that they come out with. One you can look up is called Text Analytics, where it says you can throw a bunch of data at uh, you into Text Analytics. It could be structured, unstructured. Uh, it could be data from you know handwritten notes. And what it does is, let's say if you have a rare form of cancer that you're researching on, it's able to show connections, primary connections, secondary connections, but it could be patient data versus the medication they were given and the outcomes. So as the doctor, for me, it gives me a sense, it's a really driving blind, you know, it gives me a, a GPS that says, okay, these are the possible outcomes. Now, based on your ability and capability, you can deep dive into one of them. Of course, it's beyond that it's an uncharted path, but at least it's not as dark as it would be. So I think that's where technology plays a good role in looking at data in different forms. It exists just that how do you bring everything together? The last one I think is economies of scale. You know, when you look at certain technologies that are very expensive, but when the adoption rate is higher, uh, telemed is a classic example. I, if it's gonna cost me $10 lesser, I would rather, you know, go for a telemed. So technologies, when there's economies of scale and scope, Uh, that would bring down the price uh, per point uh, and technology would help in that. So I think these are some of the ways in which you should be looking at the problem, not just from the payer's point of view, but also the cost point of view. A fever is a fever. I think 15 years ago, I probably paid $5, $10. Today, I pay minimum $60. Why is that? These are the questions that we need to ask and see how can technology really bring down costs? How can you bring in efficiencies Uh, into the operation, which, you know, we would look at when you're looking at an assembly line, a manufacturing, but do we look at a healthcare, hospital efficiency? Where are these costs coming from? And that's, I think, where we need to look at data. Mm.
0: Really, really powerful words there. Uh, Coming up on our hour, um, I think the, first of all, let me just thank uh, Hiran and Kiran for what I think was a terrific way to begin to sensitize everyone to the complexity of technology or health no it's technology health hybrid it's the realization of systemic changes the inclusion of vital stakeholders the reality as we've heard from both uh speakers today that there is uh traction being made and not just because of this last couple of years but there's been efforts that have been ongoing continuously and perhaps we're now looking at the positivity of outcome, uh, the glass half full, which is absolutely great for patients, caregivers, we've heard about health services, the personalized care, and of course, economies that need to now look at uh, efficiencies, and of course, obviously, uh, scale. Um, if I could just, in a way, ask uh, Hiran uh, and Kiran, what would be in a in your top one sentence, your summary and outlook for where you see uh, all this headed to? Um, Hiran? What's your What's your takeaway for our listeners?
2: So I think the future is definitely a brighter one. Um, I'm very positive that, you know, there are a combination of both internal motivations and external motivations um, to really change how healthcare can be delivered for the future. But I also think that, you know, um, that's a lot of work to be done by all stakeholders. And healthcare is unique in that sense that um, policy, technology, and the willingness, the readiness is going to be all equally important for us to effect this change. But I see that if this can happen, then you know the lives that we're going to lead over the next few decades are going to be tremendously different than the lives that our previous generation have led.
0: Karen.
1: Um, So Rohit, uh, apologies, but can I kind of take more than a sentence? (laughs) 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 So, I mean, I wanted to, I had a very different take on this. And I think, um, you know, strategies for, I think one of the things that we need to look at is health behaviors, right? Where we're looking at how is a person different from the other when it comes to, um, you know, their own managing your own personal wealth. And I think this is where uh, we need to have a strategy, right? using data and insights but again whatever the initial gain that we would achieve through this understanding it would diminish over time because you know we need to actively intervene understand people and have an intervention then once that you kind know, of comes to an end you move ahead and then look at people so it's basically understanding and profiling uh, the patients and what motivates them is very important and that's where technology can really help but again you know we are human beings so technology Cannot work alone. What we what we need for technology to be very effective uh, is to include uh, incentives, you know, provider incentives, social support incentives. So that's where we are creatures of rewards, right? We we do things that we are rewarded about. It. So I think understanding the profile of patients, being able to see what motivates them, what incentive, um, what incentivizes them, for example. And that's where sharing of information and having a more holistic picture of a person's health becomes very important, rather than just keeping it in your EMR or just keeping it on some app. And this is where technology can really help. When you bring all that data together, you can identify health risks early. You can focus more on well-being rather than treatment. Because all the discussion around costs and cure is great, but I think we need to manage um, the beginning of the funnel as well. And as Dr. Huron said, this is where I think we should move towards more of precision health, or precision engagement, personalized health, and we can do all that with technology because we are able to collect data in an interoperable way. We have AI and MO, so I think we really need to get on uh, being able to use what we have in a very, very insightful way.
0: Just get on and get it done, right? I mean, exactly. What do we mean? Just uh, you know, the time is here. Um, Well, that brings us to the end of our first episode. Um, For those listeners, uh, we'd like to sort of just let you know to stay tuned for episode two, uh, which is actually going to pick up on some of our discussion today and where and how does personalized health, the use of technology, really evolve and get itself into. And we'll go deeper into that. Is it a double-edged sword? Will it actually really result in outcomes and so on? So some exciting stuff ahead. Uh, Thank you for listening. Um, This is uh, The Voices Project. You can follow us on the uh, www.thevoicesprojectasia.org. Yep, almost forgot that long one there. Um, And again, I'd like to give a deep thanks to our speakers today and you can find us on our RSS and Spotify feeds as well. Thank you so much and thanks for listening.